Star Trek The Next Generation, and Doctor Who. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Ryan Blake. Taking you through a classic science fiction team up Star Trek The Next Generation and Doctor Who from the Assimilation Squared eight issue miniseries published in 2012 by IDW. And Ryan, for once, it's not necessarily clear who each of us will pick since we're both sci fi fans and like both these franchises. Yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm a diehard fan of both of them they're both integral parts of my childhood and i assume it's the same for you yeah i think uh, well star trek was, was one of the first science fiction series i ever watched obviously we're talking about the original series and then i got into doctor who in the mid 80s no, early 80s i guess but it was the mid 70s doctor who's as they were dripping out into uh, the states and canada wherever i watched it who was your first doctor well in linear terms my first Doctor, very, very technically, is Tom Baker. In that, my first actual memory of Doctor Who that I, that I can place in my mind, that I know happened in real time, was Legopolis, where Tom Baker turns mm. into Peter Davison. So, very technically, Tom Baker. Tom Baker for me as well. The I've told this story before, but the, the Hand of Fear was the first story I ever saw. I saw it in the States while I was, uh, you know, a summer in Texas. And I didn't know what I was watching, just that it was intense and interesting and creepy. And then I caught that show again in Canada later, and it was again The Hand of Fear. That's how I knew it was the same show. Yeah. And then I discovered, okay, this is Doctor Who, this is the format, this is when it airs, and started you know, watching it. But uh, So Tom Baker was also my, uh, my first Doctor, maybe not my favorite over time, but certainly my first. Coming to the same way you did, in the sense of just catching a random episode because after Logopolis, there was like a gap in my viewing. Uh, I was able to see my first proper sit down and watch it start to finish. Tom Baker was actually city of death. So I was set up really well because that's one of the best Doctor Who serials ever, in my opinion. So I sort of hit the ground running with that one. Who ended up uh, being your favorite Doctor over time? <laughs> Given that Doctor Who's still going, so I, <laughs> I want to be on the right side of history for this. But my favorite Doctor as of this moment is the seventh, which is probably an unusual choice. It's the same for me, so it's not that unusual, I guess. <laughs> uh, over here it is. In the UK, that would be considered, I think it's fair to say, a relatively unusual choice. But The Seventh Doctor is by far and away my favourite, certainly of the classic Doctors and overall. I mean, there's been moments that other Doctors have uh, have really sort of piqued my interest. But but no, The Seventh Doctor, one of the best Doctor companion team-ups uh, with the, the Seventh Doctor and Ace. Yes. Uh, and... All of New Who, as it's called, owes a huge debt to the Seventh Doctor's adventures, which I don't think every single fan really appreciates. Completely agree. What about the on the Star Trek side of things? Was the original series the first that you ever experienced? Yeah, it used to be. It was six o'clock on Wednesdays. It's a weird tradition. Star Trek in this country, despite being very popular, this country being England, is historically it's shown at six o'clock in the evening on BBC Two. And... My first memory of, of classic Trek is, weirdly, I can remember the exact scene. I don't remember the episode, which I should, but um, it's the scene where the red shirt treads on that rock and it explodes. Is that the apple? I think it is, yeah. I can't. Yeah. All, all I remember is watching it, because we were having dinner at the time, watching it and thinking, oh, this is a show where rocks can blow up? I've got to watch more of this, because that's just so weird. And no matter how big Trek got and how 
big the fan base in the UK was, and it is, it is big in the UK. It's by no means like a minority show or anything like that. It only ever got six o'clock on Wednesdays on BBC Two. Now, BBC Two is the second tier BBC channel. For some reason, there's still snobbery in the BBC. Doctor Who's the only science fiction that goes on BBC One. And everything else, no matter how popular, gets shoved onto BBC Two. It's very odd. Even when Next Generation was getting millions of viewers in this country, it still only got six o'clock on Wednesdays. And I remember in high school, we used to feverishly run home as quickly as possible to make sure we got home for the episode. Even though TNG was quite heavily edited in this country because it was on at six o'clock. This is back before the days of internet being able to download episodes. But I remember distinctly... We got season one, season two, season three of Next Generation. We all watched it feverishly because there wasn't much science fiction at that time that, that was readily accessible anyway. Uh, and there was no Doctor Who at that point. It, we, and we got it a good two or three years after it aired in America and I presume Canada. And it got to the end of season three. So it's the big cliffhanger. And at that point, for, for reasons that escape anyone's knowledge, BBC hadn't bought season four or five as it was up to. So we all figured, oh no, we, we're going to have to literally wait years to find out what happens to Picard and blah de blah it was, it was a massive cliffhanger, Best of Belfords Part 1. And for some reason, BBC Two had decided we're going to buy the first episode of Season 4 of Next Generation to resolve this cliffhanger, and then no more. And we had oh. to wait a long time to get Seasons 4 and 5 and go on and on and on. So they cut you off just as it was getting good. Yeah, well, pretty because, much. Because Next Gen is, the, like, the best years of Next Gen is, like, 4, 5, and 6. Yeah, uh, would be considered the you know the really strong TNG era. Wow, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and by the time they did buy the rights to it and show it, pretty much every Star Trek fan sort of worth their salt had already purchased it on home video. There was a place in London, uh, very very quick sort of uh, reminiscence. There was a a bar in London called Pages Bar, and it was quite famous. People it, every single Saturday. It was packed out. If you didn't get in for opening, you wouldn't get a seat because in the days before the internet and the bar's closed now, so I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, they would get bootleg copies of Next Generation and latterly Deep Space Nine and to an extent Voyager episodes literally mailed across to, from the state. Someone would record it in America for them, send it across. Everyone would come into this bar you know, uh, in groups. And it was a big communal atmosphere. It was fantastic. You could talk to anyone there. It was like cheers, but for, you know, geeks. Unfortunately, that bar died a death purely because of the internet, because after a while, anyone could get hold of the episodes. And but that was the only way to actually see a lot of the next generation of Deep Space Nine episodes. I remember we all huddled together. The biggest night there was the Deep Space Nine finale, the last, you know, what you leave behind. And it was literally, uh, the bar was turning people out because it was, packed because everyone thought we were just going to see the first part of it because we knew it was a two-parter and then we watched it and it ended on the cliffhanger thing and everyone was like oh wow you know can't wait and then the guy announced okay who wants to watch the last ever episode and it was a deafening roar like i said it's uh that was how hard it was to see episodes of the next generation onwards era of star trek in this country for a while amazing you've i mean obviously we've talked about star trek before on um give me that star trek you were on an episode not so long ago relating to the Borg, and the Borg will appear in this miniseries as well that we're covering today. But this is the first time you've told that story. I, I think that's amazing to think that outside of North America, you know, the show was so hard to watch. Yeah, this is this is when it's all in black and white in this country and everyone was a chimney sweep. Yeah, Dickens talks about this uh, era of Star Trek quite clearly uh, <laughs> uh, in his books. Okay, but each episode of FW Team Up, to get back on track, one panelist must 
pick one show to defend in this case. So, uh, Ryan, what's yours? Despite my love for both, my overwhelming love is for Doctor Who, so I'm going to be taking that. And while I would be normally a, a you know a bigger Doctor Who fan than a Star Trek: The Next Generation fan, I will take Star Trek: The Next Generation for the purposes of this podcast. So as is customary, we'll preface with a reason or reasons why we like the characters we've chosen. Ryan, what's so great about Doctor Who? As if I don't know. <laughs> well, Doctor Who has endured for over 50 years, more or less continuously. For me, it represents and inspires hope, courage over cowardice, and compassion over cruelty. And of course, just as importantly, fun. And all of this is tied up into a, what is an infinitely flexible format that's only contained by, well, all of time and space. I mean, it's despite being as old as it is, it's just reinvented itself again with a female doctor. That's true. So, uh, Siskoid, tell us what Next Gen uh, means to you. In its day, it was the most successful version of Star Trek that ever was. More successful than the original series was in its day. I think once they let go of the past, of trying to, to repeat what the original series had been doing, they really embraced the era the stories were told in. So it had its own voice. It was about family in the same way that the original series was maybe about friendship. There were families aboard the ship. Uh, they were a family. And I think this was exactly the, the cultural shift happened in our own culture where you started to create your own families. The family wasn't necessarily the nuclear family of the 50s and 60s. Uh, and later, you had very different families with, you know, thanks to, to divorce and, and uh, parents who would come out as gay. And you would have very, very different family units, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And that shift also led to, when you look at the rest of the television landscape at the time, shows like Friends, who became massive hits. It was about making your own family. And that's something that I've adopted in my own life without necessarily realizing it no offense to my actual blood relatives but my actual family what i feel is my family are a group of tight-knit friends that's what next gen was it was an ensemble cast in the way that the original series wasn't if that makes sense let's talk a little bit about each of these franchises comics histories ryan can you do the honors about uh, doctor who and in comics yeah certainly uh, buckle up everyone <laughs> yeah it's a rich it's a rich and involved history, but uh, I I'm sure you'll do it justice. Doctor Who's history in comics is basically as long as its history on TV. Almost immediately upon airing and becoming part of the 60s zeitgeist, he first appeared in Polly Styles' TV comic, and also in hardback Doctor Who annuals, which would come out every Christmas in the UK. Uh, the Dalek Chronicles, which did not actually feature the Doctor himself, also appeared in TV Century 21 and again in Dalek annuals every Christmas. From the third Doctor onwards, the comic strip changed to Countdown, and two years later, the strip returned to TV comic, and then on to Marvel UK. Now, before this, the fourth Doctor's polystyle stories were mostly reprints of earlier second and third Doctor stories, with Tom Baker's head superimposed on top of the previous Doctors. Just the head mind. So convoluted continuity abounds even in Doctor Who comics. In 1979, Doctor Who Weekly, weekly being the chosen format for most British comics, became the latest home for our time traveller. In short order, the Weekly became the Doctor Who Monthly, and then simply the Doctor Who magazine. This covers the tenure of the fourth to seventh incarnation of the Doctor until the 90s, where the comic would far outlive the original run of the show. When the first revival, in the form of Paul McGann's eighth Doctor, failed, it would continue and succeed for a long time in the magazine, as well as in a short strip in the Radio Times, 
which is the UK equivalent of TV Guide. This included an intelligent alien horse with pink polka dots as a companion. The adventures of the Eighth Doctor continued until 2005, with the debut of the new TV show. New magazines Doctor Who Battles in Time and Doctor Who Adventures, as well as the Doctor Who Annual, continuing every Christmas as it does to this day. In 2007, IDW was the first American comic book publisher to produce original Doctor Who comic books in the US, starting in early 2008 with the release of Doctor Who Agent Provocateur, which was the adventures of the 10th Doctor running as regular issues alongside regular releases including anniversary miniseries featuring each of the former Doctors as well as collected volumes and annuals. This continued with the 11th Doctor comics that also ran as regular releases alongside miniseries, which also included anniversary miniseries featuring each of the former Doctors as well as annuals. The license ran to the close of 2013, culminating in the 50th anniversary, as well as the Star Trek crossover we're discussing today. In 2014, Titan Publishing Group took over. They released new comic series featuring the 10th, 11th and 12th Doctors concurrently, and the War Doctor was also featured on occasion. They also published miniseries featuring the 8th and 9th Doctors, the latter which became an ongoing series which ran for 14 issues. Following the success of these four series, new series featuring the 3rd and 4th Doctors were published. Comic strips also continued to feature in Doctor Who magazine and Doctor Who Adventures, and we now await the return of these comics with the debut of the 13th Doctor in autumn. Alongside this, promotional mini-comics have also been given away free with multi-packs of crisps and snacks. Other comics have appeared through various other bits of merchandising, like collectible cards in ice lollies, and slideshows, projectors, and viewmasters. As for next-gen in comics, the first comics company to publish TNG Comics was DC, who held the Star Trek license from the 80s to the mid-90s. They'd had success with their movie-era original cast comics, so they launched a six-issue TNG miniseries in 1988 during the first season of the new show. Uh, Then that became a monthly that ran from 1989 to 1996, spanning 80 issues and six annuals. Most were written by Michael Jan Friedman, who'd penned a few TNG novels. Uh, During this time, DC also published a few TNG specials and miniseries like Ill Wind, The Medalla Imperative, Shadowheart, and a DS9 crossover with Malibu Comics, then owned by Marvel, because DC held on to, to the TOS and TNG licenses, but all the other Star Trek properties were with the competition. Uh, in 2000, TNG moved to Wildstorm, which was a DC publishing imprint. It published a few miniseries and specials. Then we have to wait for 2007, when IDW picks up the license and publishes half a dozen TNG projects, including this one that we're reading today. Uh, in 2009, Tokyo Pop also publishes a TNG manga that I haven't seen. And then back to uh, IDW, they published TNG Hive, another Borg story. And in 2012, it seemed like they were letting go of Next Gen in favor of J.J. Abrams' Trek uh, almost exclusively. But in 2016, they started giving TNG some love again with miniseries called Waypoint and Mirror Broken and more to come uh, this year with Through the Mirror and Terra Incognita. You know, the Star Trek comics history is a lot longer, but I've decided to keep it to TNG only uh, for the purposes of this episode. So, Ryan... Are we ready to get into this issue? Yes, absolutely. Let's go for it. Assimilation Squared by writers Scott and David Tipton, sometimes with Tony Lee, artists Gordon Purcell and J.K. Woodward, with one sequence by the Sharp Brothers, that'll be interesting to discuss, letterers Sean Lee and Robbie Robbins, and editor Denton J. Tipton. Stardate 45635.2. The Borg attack Delta 4. A surprise attack, without the usual call for surrender. And they're not alone. 
Another type of cyborg helps them assimilate the planet, the Cybermen. Starfleet manages to get the Delton Prime Minister off the planet, but will she have a home to return to? Earth, ancient Egypt, dateline unknown. Amy, Rory and the Doctor are fleeing on a chariot. After a chase and escape, they sneak into the Pharaoh's palace and are instantly captured. It's revealed that the Pharaoh's advisor is an alien. The Doctor whips out a green crystal, which is actually a handy, portable, interdimensional travel device, and sends the alien home. Upon entering the TARDIS, the Doctor has a strange and shocking vision of Cybermen. And is that the Borg? The TARDIS lands somewhere after making a strange noise. They decide to take a rare day off in 1940 San Francisco, wander into a bar that turns out to be a Dixon Hill holodeck simulation, complete with Riker, Beverly Crusher, and Data having fun. But let's track back a bit. Before the invasion of Delta IV, the Enterprise-D was lending support to a risky Starfleet mining operation on an ocean planet, difficult because the locals needed ecological norms to be followed, but urgent to help rebuild the fleet after the events of Wolf 359. After a catastrophic accident, things settle down and some of the crew decide to relax on the holodeck exploring a new Dixon Hill hollow novel. The Starfleet crew assume the holodeck simulation has broken down. Well, it's a day ending in a Y, when a strange skinny man knows Data is an android. The shoe drops for the Doctor when he realises the gravity and smells are too perfect. Data assumes the holodeck has achieved sentience again. Riker decides to end the programme, rather than risk a sequel to Elementary My Dear Data. They all find themselves in a tiny, tiny holodeck. The Doctor asks where they are, and the Starfleet crew say this is above their pay grade, and bring him to the Captain. On their way to see Picard, the Doctor sees Mr. Worf, whom he recognises as a Klingon, but doesn't know why he recognises what a Klingon is. At least Counselor Troy makes it clear to Picard these people can be trusted. Just then, the ship gets a distress call from Delta IV, and Captain Picard takes the Enterprise there, only to find a combined fleet of Borg and Cyber ships in orbit. It appears to be commanded by a Cyber leader upgraded with Borg technology. While the starship hides in a nebula, the crew looks for answers in the Enterprise computer they find one single reference to the Cybermen in the original Enterprise's logs. As they read, the Doctor's memories are painfully updated. Stardate 3368.5 A landing party from the Enterprise investigates a communications blackout from an archaeological team on Aprilia 3. Though everything seems fine, Captain Kirk is disturbed by how emotionless everyone is. The party tries to get into the ancient relay station at the center of the dig when... The fourth Doctor arrives and opens a secure door even Scotty was having trouble with. He offers Spock a jelly baby, which he finds fascinating. Clearly they aren't prevalent in the Federation, so it's clearly not the utopia they claim it is. They find the crew zombified by some kind of cybernetic earpieces. Spock takes the earpieces out and the research team awakens. But so do Cybermen from behind a door. They attack, and while the captain does his best Kirk-foo, the Cybermen throw him around like a ragdoll. The Doctor asks Kirk for any gold he might have on his person. Kirk hands him his communicator, which the Doctor turns into gold dust, greatly weakening the Cybermen. Spock and Scotty disintegrate the Cybermen with their phasers, and when they turn around, the mysterious Doctor is gone. They leave Aprilia 3, but the relay station activates behind their backs. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
In the present, Picard wants the Doctor to meet his timey-wimey expert, Guinan. Like the Doctor, she can feel the turn of the universe and knows history's been changed. And she can vouch for the Time Lord, which is good enough for Picard. The Enterprise heads for the planet Kojin-5, which the Borg were assimilating when they suddenly and mysteriously left. The Doctor persuades Picard to let them beam down with the away team, while they find Borg and Cyberman-like corpses alike as well as the crystalline defence drones that attack the away team in turn. The Doctor disables one with his sonic screwdriver. The others are destroyed by phaser fire. After examining the cyborg bodies, the crew determines that no third party was responsible for their deaths. The Borg and Cybermen were killing each other. Sentry footage confirms the Cybermen have declared war on the Borg. Moments later, the Enterprise comes across Borg ship debris. Sensors confirm the Cyberfleet has headed for Borg space. A surviving cube hails the Enterprise, but Picard refuses his enemy all assistance. The Doctor sympathises with Picard, but big picture, the Cybermen will win and conquer the multiverse. It is worrisome that the Cyberfleet is heading for the Borg homeworld now. Even Guinan can't change the Captain's mind. Troy suggests Amy would have more luck, and Miss Pond tells Picard about the Doctor and shows him the TARDIS. The Doctor then shows what an unchecked Cyberborg future will look like 50 years hence, the Cybermen have conquered the Borg, the Klingons, the Jadoon, the Slitheen, and eventually the Federation. Picard is finally convinced. Picard agrees to meet the Borg on a small planetoid. There, a spokesperson calling himself the Conduit, formerly the captain of the USS Potemkin, explains the Cybermen turned on them when they detected the TARDIS aboard the Enterprise and panicked. They then corrupted the Borg Executive Library Archive and took over. The small enclave of Borg that managed to partition itself from the network survived, and it agrees to help upgrade the Enterprise weapons for the coming conflict. The Doctor suggests pursuing the Cyber Controller ship and freeing the Borg directly. Picard, glass half empty, counters. How do we do that without a copy of Borg OS? Doctor counters this counter by saying this is no problem if we know when a copy exists. Wolf 359, during Picard's time as a Borg. However, there's no way the replicators can create enough gold to be used against the Cyberfleet. So Picard returns to Nea 7 to negotiate new mining rights with the locals. They refuse, but then the Doctor uses his inspiring speech card, trademarked, and changes their minds. The Doctor and his companions head to Wolf 359 to get the Borg OS restore point. They see Picard as Locutus, who sees them right back, but ignores them. They find the archive, and after lamenting the fate of the 11,000 who will die in the ensuing battle, return to the present. There's still a problem, though. The Cyberfleet is well ahead of the Enterprise, and faster, too. There's no way to catch up. The Doctor agrees to take the TARDIS to the Cyber Controller ship because he can break the laws of physics. It turns out he's been planning this all along. The Pons persuade the Doctor into letting them be part of the away team. Worf is loaded for Bear, with the Doctor being quite fond of bears. He tells Worf, a Klingon warrior from a warrior culture, that guns are stupid, implying his way of life is mostly a waste of time. The TARDIS lands on the Cyber ship, and the away team soon gets into a firefight with the Cyberborg. Cut off from Worf, his security team, and the pawns, the rest of the away team tries to find an alternate route. Only thanks to Data's strength do they get through the access hatch. Meanwhile, Worf hands the pawns some phasers so they can defend themselves. But will they use them? By different routes, both parties turn a corner and face similar rooms full of Cybermen. Worf and his group start a firefight in the engine room and manage to make the ship drop out of warp before escaping. The Doctor, Picard and Data realize they need to get to the bridge to get to the Cyber Controller. Before Data can calculate a route, the Cyberborg capture them and prepare to upgrade them, when suddenly... The Enterprise catches up and fires gold dust at the Cybership, which permeates its atmosphere, then leaves before the rest of the Cyberfleet arrives 
The Cybermen are disabled. The Doctor is impressed with Geordie, but Picard shuts down any chance of Mr. LaForge becoming a future companion immediately. They cross verbal swords with the Cyber Controller, and this metal blowfelt tells them the entire plan, how they got into this universe, and how they lured the Doctor to this point. He then leaves his throne and prepares to kill the Doctor, even as the Doctor gives him one last chance to surrender. When that fails, he uses his degree in jiggery-pokery to explore the Borg Collective, freeing them from cyber tyranny. The ship rocks. Conduit informs the away team that to prevent the Cybermen from attempting another takeover, all their ships with Borg aboard will self-destruct. With 285 seconds to spare, the two teams make a run for the TARDIS. Conduit attempts to assimilate the TARDIS once inside. Data makes a grab for Conduit. And in the scuffle, Data connects to the TARDIS, which is looking for a place to hide from the Borg hack. The android finds the experience fascinating, but continues to fight. Worf sees an opportunity and calls out to Rory. The Klingon grabs Conduit and throws him... At the TARDIS open door, obligingly opened by Rory, and into the time vortex, out into infinity. Back on the Enterprise, Riker remembers the captain of the Potemkin fondly, and he asks the Doctor if they'll remember any of this in the morning. The Doctor vaguely explains the dimensions will more or less shift back to their correct places, so don't worry about continuity. Picard and the Doctor share mutual respect, but please don't come back. And so everything is back to normal. But the Borg do remember the Time Lord and decide they need to master time travel if he's to be assimilated. Oh, foreboding. <laughs> I guess this is the origin of their plan to... happens in the first contact. Yep, they've actually strengthened their continuity once again with the Borg. Not convoluted at all. <laughs> So, yeah, so we see the origins of first contact here, clearly. Well, yeah. well, uh, well past, Siskoid. Well past. So, Ryan, what's your general opinion of the story? I have got a big soft spot for this story. I mean, its flaws are pretty obvious and fairly numerous. But as a big fan of both universes, I've wanted to see this for such a long time. I think there's so many points of contact between the two of them. They share a lot of philosophy. Uh, certainly a, a moral code is, is fairly similar. And... There's just such a vast scope for both of them. I mean, you've got so many years of Star Trek continuity to merge with so many points of Doctor Who continuity. You know, it's it's a, it's a fun... I try and avoid using this word, but it's a romp. It's a fun romp that has a bit of an air of melancholy to it. Uh, and obviously not everyone is in character 100% of the time. <coughs> God! But uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I really... I like this. I really do. Uh, for all its flaws, it's two great tastes that taste great together if i can use that cliche for me it was a bit of a disappointment more than a bit probably at eight issues it's too long because they spend so much of it just recapping things telling us about things that happened in the previous issues retelling things that the readers should know i'm, I'm guessing you know retelling the entire history of uh locutus of borg giving us a lot of exposition about who the doctor is i imagine that maybe there are readers that enjoy star trek and don't know anything about doctor who and vice versa and this is the reason for it but at some point i felt we were in a conference room having you know exposition yeah. scenes uh, again and again and again and once we're in the climax it all happens so fast that I feel like we're, we're not exploring everything we might have. The best bit for me was that suddenly we go back to the TOS era and the fourth Doctor is there. Yeah, I actually agree. That was that was my favorite bit as well, by, by quite a bit. The thing is, they actually got that, apart from a couple of bits, they basically got that bit pretty much bang on in some ways. And it just made me think, why didn't you do... If you must do exposition, do it in a creative way and have other Doctors 
in other bits of Star Trek's history. And, and you know, if you're if you're merging these universes as they've chosen to do, have other doctors meet other captains in other ships and things like that. You know. Yeah, you could easily have done a and, and match them interestingly so you could have tos really should have been <laughs> a Troughton uh, crossover yeah. for that era and then you could have a uh, tom baker with the movies perhaps and uh you know you could have used several doctors and have uh you know voyager is lost in space and there are many versions of the doctor where he's lost in time that's something. yeah it's ready made really wasn't it i mean i i actually funnily enough I, when i was reading this again i had this idea of the fifth doctor meeting going on Deep Space Nine, but I really wanted the Fifth Doctor to meet Cisco. I nearly said Ciscoid then. I just think the Fifth Doctor being, you know, the, the sort of youthful one who who doesn't get any respect, who kind of has to shout a lot because he looks younger than he is, meeting Captain Cisco and him being like a, a bit of a force of nature. I just would love to have seen that clash. And that's a great TARDIS crew to go to Deep Space Nine because Tegan is sort of Akira, Adric... Could have hung out with Jake and uh, Nog. Yeah, well, Nissa and Dax would have been pretty... Yeah, yeah, Nissa and Dax. That would have been pretty nifty, yeah. So there's plenty of ways that they could have enlarged this, and instead of having a lot of padding, could have been a a wider crossover and and used the properties. Uh, Maybe they had plans to do more, and and so explore all these other Doctors and other Star Treks in other miniseries, but that just hasn't happened. Because the big thing here is saying that the Cybermen uh, are the ancestors of the Borg. So putting these two villains together, I think, was the principal idea. Yeah, that seems to be the core around which it all revolves. I mean, as a Doctor Who fan, primarily, I did get a it's kind of a giddy little thrill out of the Cybermen actually winning against the Borg. Because I think, uh, uh, certainly myself, and I know a lot of other Doctor Who fans, didn't rail against the Borg. I mean, I, I really enjoy the Borg, but but they basically are, let's be honest, you, f- you file the serial numbers off the Borg and you've got, Cybermen with better production values and a better work ethic, and uh, so the idea of the Cybermen winning through quite a simple means of, of like corrupting their operating system, I really did enjoy that a lot. And I know they were trying to put across that it was epic in scale, but it never really quite got to that point. You know, I liked what we saw, and I liked the sort of redesign of the Cyberborg, as it were. And I assume that would have like evolved over time, but I just I never really hugely felt that the whole multiverse was under threat. I mean, partly because I mean, you know, the Doctor always wins. Sometimes it's a pyrrhic victory, but for the most part, he wins. And I think that's fair to say about the TNG crew as well. I liked a lot of the feel of it rather than the actual execution of it in this instance. There's a whole lot of telling us things and not showing them. So when we see what the universe would look like with the cyberborg taking over and we see that, I mean, there's some enjoyment to be gotten to see cyber Jadoon and the cyber Slitheen and what the look of the armors would look like. Although don't these Cybermen just take your brain out and put it in a in a standard casing yeah well these are technically the cybus alternate version of the cybermen if you actually read when you read the comic and read the sort of fine print of it these are the ones from the parallel universe that fell through into this universe or deliberately transversed it so that you're absolutely right these are the the brain stealing ones and that's it so yeah they pick up tricks from the borg i guess Uh, i guess so yeah they must do i i really do feel like that this reads very much more like a doctor who episode that has the Next Generation crew guest starring, even though it's in their universe. And I know the Doctor, he's one of those people, you know, you say he's a fish out of water, but he's really, he's a fish that brings his own water with him wherever he goes. And I think that really tells here. One of the problems I do have is that whether this is Doctor Who water or not, I'm not feeling the Doctor banter or humor all that much in the story because 
Tony Lee is just credited as a helper in this. And I'm not sure the Tipton brothers are necessarily Doctor Who fans. or They wrote yeah. a, a whole lot of Star Trek at IDW. But not Doctor Who. Tony Lee was mostly the, the lead on, on those stories, on uh, Doctor Who comics. And uh, he's credited in the first few issues. And you could tell that whole sequence in Egypt. That's Tony Lee doing all the tropes. Yeah, and, and they are quite pronounced, the tropes in this. You know, the Doctor gets a new hat and Centurion stuff for Rory. And once Tony Lee is not credited anymore, which is about after a third of the way in, you know, the Doctor could be anyone, or it could be any version of the Doctor. Even the Tom Baker Doctor could be any version of the Doctor the way he's scripted. You know, one of the things I would have loved to see, and maybe in live action more than anything, is William Shatner versus Tom Baker. The two oh, giant egos, been, you know? That would have been glorious. That really would. Especially if you've got Tom Baker in his, in his later years where he's improvising and going off book quite mm-hmm. a lot just yeah. to see them competing with each other. Though I imagine in his timeline here, he's just before Leela joins because uh, he's alone. So it, He's it, alone, it, yeah. Yeah, it should be between Sarah Jane and Leela, probably. Uh, if we talk about just like where people are in their timelines, this is essentially Amy and Rory, you know, after their wedding. Judging by the fact that they're married, and it would be a bit of a, a tangled mess if they mentioned the whole seeing the Doctor getting killed thing. I actually think this is set for the Doctor... Literally in a kind of unaired episode between, well, obviously it's unaired, uh, between the end of season five and... A Christmas Carol. Because otherwise I feel like you'd be remiss if you didn't make some mention for the fans of the the Amy being worried about knowing what's going to happen to the Doctor. So I figure it's got to be in that kind of in-between bit. As for Next Gen, uh, well, they do give the star date, so uh, it's pretty clear going by star dates that this is in season five between the outcast and cause and effect, which uh, is still... After a matter of time where they do a Doctor Who riff on the show. Yes, of course. With Berlingoth for Asmussen. So there's actually, it's interesting, they said it in season five where in terms of Next Generation, there's quite a lot of time travel wibbly wobbliness. I mean, you've got Berlingoth for Asmussen, so that's going to put Picard off of time travel anyway. Just because, you know, his yeah. example of a time traveller is a, a blooming great thief. And cause and effect is the result of a time anomaly where a crew gets captured in a time loop for, what did it work out as? 80 years, something like that. I don't remember the exact... It's it's nigh on a century. So again, that's another negative. And then later on in the season, you've got the season five finale, which they find Data's head trapped in San Francisco in the distant past. And he's been dead for years and this whole causality loop. And those aliens who time travel back to like the 19th century to steal the life energy from people suffering from cholera and what have you. It's kind of the perfect season for the Doctor to meet Picard and have Picard be really put out by the idea of someone who just freewheels it through time. Just, you know, time traveling willy nilly and altering history. I mean, it's kind of odd to make these two meet and not have any mention of Rasmussen because he is a Doctor Who figure. The, the time ship in that is bigger on the inside. I mean, it's obviously a Doctor Who riff on the show. There's a, there's a weird, we got to sort of forget that Picard has already met the Doctor as yeah. Matt Frewer would play him. Yeah, less. yeah. He's already met the Max Headroom version of a Time Lord and it's <laughs> uh, put a bad feeling in him. And I can I completely understand. But come, sort of coming on to Picard, I just Picard never sat right with the... That's one, one thing that did stand out to me. I don't think Picard really, the writers really captured Picard all that well there are occasions where he was done for the sake of plot which is one of my huge pet peeves in any writing sure and 
even when he wasn't, I feel his his bullheadedness was was very out of character, and he was he very much sort of. And obviously, Wolf three five nine was still fresh in Picard's mind at this stage. Picard always struck me as a big picture kind of a person that he would put himself and his feelings aside to get the job done and do right by you know the Federation, the galaxy, life itself. And in this, the dog has to go to quite ridiculous lengths to convince him that maybe the death of the entire multiverse is a bad thing. Well, he pulls a uh, pyramids of Mars on him. Yeah, I was going to say you took the words out of my mouth. He, he, uh, this is what happens if you uh, if we don't counter Sutek now. This is what happens if we don't counter issue five is just about convincing Picard to do the right thing. And uh, and that's where there's a lot of padding. That's where we're retelling stories that we've heard before. And I'm not saying there aren't any character moments or visuals that aren't interesting in that issue. But by that time, I'm very, very impatient. And I read these all in one go, originally. An eight-issue block. So the repetition is annoying when you do that. If I'd read it monthly, would I not have gotten a bit discouraged with the story? Because... Let's retell some stories that I already know. And as a Trek and Doctor Who fan, none of this is new to me. That's that's where I lose patience with the story is there. I wish they'd picked up basically issue three. Then issue four would have been uh, pretty much what we see in the issue eight. You know, the climax of it. But then you would expand the climax a lot more and have... I, th- I guess the one expression I would use to describe the book is half-assed and by that i mean i don't mean there's no craft behind it i mean the there's a lot of i mean it's painted art and uh they actually go for a different artist when they're doing the tos era and there's some interesting things but everything that i want to see more of or get developed more is just a wet firecracker it's very interesting that the doctor would go back to wolf 359 you know go back in the past get that archive but we're at a crucial moment in star trek history and they don't do much with it. The Doctor kind of, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. It's a fixed point in time. That's fine. But the adventure itself, once he's in the past, is, okay, we're aboard a Borg ship. We need to find the archive. Oh, there's the archive. They take it and leave. There's no yeah. obstacle. They sort of walk between the raindrops in that because I was recounting it beat by beat of that scene. Now, the whole fixed point element, a Doctor Who trope. Okay, now I get why narratively it's necessary. There are some parts of history... You cannot change no matter what. That's fine. I get that. But it was very much used as an excuse here just to have the doctor just go, la, 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 la. Okay, let's get, let's download the Borg operating system. So they walk past. Now, the first time Amy bumps into a Borg, she screams, but the Borg does nothing. Fine. Amy is clearly not a threat. And then they see Locutus, who sees them. Okay, they're not threatening them. So you can sort of hand wave that a little bit. But when they're downloading the Borg operating system, i.e. the fundamental core of everything that makes the Borg the Borg, and no one does anything, and it's not considered a threat, that I felt was really stretching the point a lot, like really too far. Because at that point, you have to think, well, in this version of the universe, what do the Borg consider a threat? Because if they're a computer-based or technology-based species, the thing that runs that technology, anyone who has a copy of that, must be a huge threat, surely. And which is what happened with the Cybermen. And that's how they, they conquered them. And I just thought that was that st- struck me as being lazy writing. Yeah, yeah. This happens over and over, I think, where there should have been a complication to make it exciting. But instead, there's a lot of talking. People just glide on through the obstacles that are presented before them. Even in the climax, for example, I, I, I don't mean action-wise, but when Rory and Amy are given weapons, 
right? The doctor yes. makes this big speech. Weapons make you dumb. And then Worf nevertheless arms Amy and Rory, who are in his party. Is there then an ethical dilemma? No, because later on we just see Amy and Rory shooting up the, the cyberborg. And there's no mention of them betraying the doctor's, the spirit of what the doctor teaches. Suddenly they're just other crew members of the Enterprise. They are not yeah. Doctor Who characters. It's very odd uh, because of the juxtaposition of the two philosophies, Doctor Who and Star Trek. Now, okay, now I sort of want to come on to the whole individuality military thing in a second. But Rory's a nurse, okay? He was a centurion as well and etc. And Amy obviously will fiercely defend the Doctor and Rory going to whatever lengths. And we see that in the show. But they've never actually taken part in what is essentially an armed assault before. And they both don't bat an eyelid. You know, these are two civilians. The, Rory's taken the uh, Hippocratic Oath. And whilst Amy's not sort of, you know, subject to that, the fact is they are going on board a hostile alien ship and they are shooting up the place. I mean, they are, you know, actively shooting down the opposition. And at no point does the writer give either of them any kind of inner voice saying, oh, I'm not comfortable doing this. Or, or Rory takes Amy to one side and said, look, this thing's got a stun setting. Let's just stun them because we're not military. I've failed to preserve life and I'm faintly sure I haven't married a bloodthirsty maniac. But they just, they they kind of gloss over that. I mean, when I was reading it, because I, I read it issue by issue when it came out, the repetition does still irritate even, even then, I grant you. But again, I was enjoying it so much because it was two of my favourites merging. I got, In my head canon, I, I kind of wrote a scene that said, Exactly what I just said. Rory, before they go on board, before they beam across, Rory takes Amy to one side and says, I'm not killing anyone or anything. They're alive in some fashion. I'm just going to put this on the biggest stun setting. I don't mind knocking them out and I'll do anything to defend you, but I don't want to kill anything. So I, I, I gave them a kind of like a, a false break on that one because obviously that scene should have been written, I feel, and wasn't. You know, that's exactly it, where there is so many places where there's a missed opportunity, either for... A joke, either for a comeback uh, to something, either for a reference, either for an explanation uh, or you know, just making sense of a scene. I think part of that is the writers not really knowing one property or the other well enough to really do it justice. The funny thing is, regarding Rory and Hippocratic Oath and everything, there is a scene earlier on. Wait, I can't remember what issue it is because I, I reread it in graphic novel format. But quite early on, Rory's in the sick bay with dr crusher and they have not a vastly well executed moment but but quite a nice moment where they bond over mm-hmm. because rory's very impressed with the medical technology and saying oh you must have cured everything you know no one ever gets ill anymore kind of a thing and and dr crusher in a very nice character moment says you know all this technology in the long run doesn't mean as much because we'll always need doctors and nurses and that kind of validates both of them rory coming from the early 21st century sees all this wonderful new medicine and where medicine's going to go, at least in one universe. And that fills him with hope. And Dr. Crusher being super compassionate says, yes, this is all good, but we still need people like you. Every point in human history will need people like you. And that was grand. And then they throw that out with the, with the, the sort of fighting bit and the Amy and Rory shooting up the place. So that comes back on to sort of my point about Worf that we were both making earlier. I would have even had, I would have settled when the doctor basically dismisses the Klingon way of life by saying guns make you stupid, okay? Even if you just didn't want to do exposition, with a good bit of art, you could have literally had Worf 
looming over the 11th Doctor, looking really fearsome and intimidating, saying, kind of, what did you say? And have the Doctor looking sort of nervous. You know, if you don't want to get into dialogue, that would have kind of offset it. Like, you know, the Wolf doesn't sort of say anything back to the Doctor because he knows he could crush this person like a twig with no effort. And he's secure in his philosophy. And you could have done that just with a visual. I would have had Worf just grab a bathless. You know, that's like a visual yeah. gag like that. Because he doesn't say weapons, he says guns, guns. Yeah. Which is an important distinction. But that would have been that would have been really nice. Just to have, or just hit, he rests it on the doctor's shoulder, like the opposite side, just to sort of say, I got your philosophy right here, doctor. Yeah, and we could have had, you know, shots of Worf decapitating Cybermen. And I mean, anyway, hand to hand combat was actually more effective on the Borg than phasers because yep. Yep. they couldn't adapt to it. It's stuff like that where I thought, well, because Doctor Who is a lot jokier than Next Gen. And yes. I think that would have allowed for some of, some of the humor that we see sometimes in Next Gen and certainly in some of the Next Gen movies. And Worf is a very funny character. A lot of the humor in Next Gen and DS9 comes from Worf and Worf's reactions and the, the cultural clash between his values and the federations and and there is some of that in here early on but by the end it's just so very mechanical we have to get through this plot and there's no time for either an ethical dilemma or uh you know a, a joke or a reaction to what you know the confrontation of the doctor who values with the starfleet values there's just no room for that i mean it's that that was a shame because i think what what i thought was a strange juxtaposition is the doctor is a big fan of humanity okay we know that from the comic uh, from the tv show and and from the comics in fact every medium the doctor will, will usually mention or it'll be highlighted that he's a big fan of humans i really thought for the most part this should have almost been the doctor's dream come true in that Humans are leading the universe in peace and exploration. They're not warlike. They've very much evolved a sort of code of ethics, uh, you know, a, a group consciousness of let's be good. Let's expand our knowledge base. Pretty much throughout all of Doctor Who's TV history, humans are in one form of trouble or another. Or this group of individuals is great, but the government or the governments or whoever's running the, the big picture aren't so great or there's a hidden darkness. So at some point, and I know this isn't the Doctor's universe and he's aware of that, but at some point I would have loved for the Doctor to have said to Amy and Rory or, or even just to, to the, the next gen crew, this is what humans can become. It's essentially a form of utopia. I, I refer you to my Jelly Baby comment earlier, but generally speaking, it's a utopia. Everyone got, has got whatever they want. No one's hungry. No one's homeless. Everyone can sort of, to an extent, do what they want to do. They can express their creativity and what have you. And everyone's working together. And at no point does the Doctor say, you know, I really wish this for my universe as well, that the humans get to this stage. Or tell Amy and Rory, this is what you can become if you apply yourselves and, and actually sort of like move beyond. Uh, and, and that doesn't happen. Now, part of me did kind of pilot that to, well, Starfleet, no matter what you say about them, and I'm a big fan of Starfleet, for all their exploration, they are the military. They are effectively the military. When there's a war in Star Trek, in the Star Trek universe... No matter what era, Starfleet are the people who do the fighting. And maybe I'm giving the writer too much credit, I don't know. But I sort of parlayed that in my head to the Doctor's not going to mention how happy he is about the state of humanity because he's landed on board what is effectively a military ship and these guys are the military and the Doctor really does not like the military unless you're, you know, unit. Well, even unit, you know, he's had problems with unit and Picard is sort of acting as an early uh, brigadier prototype here you know that's sort of more of an obstructionist and i i'm in charge here kind of character 
uh, who wants to take the war path rather than the, the path of peace that even the doctor is is trying to hold on to throughout this thing, even though it's kind of impossible to reason with the Borg or even the Cybermen. Regarding this, or for the, the philosophies, I mean, the, one of the things about the Doctor is the Doctor effectively, in his own show, always has to be right. In the sense of, he's always on the sort of, no sort of pun intended, the right side of history. He's always on the sort of like the freedom-loving side and the, the individualistic side. And it sort of got me to thinking, which Doctor would Picard actually have got along with better? Because I was going through it, going through all the Doctors, you know, up to the 12th, thinking the only one I can think of that he would remotely have got along with, maybe the third, perhaps John Pertwee's Doctor, because he's got the most experience with the military and he sort of knows how to talk to them a bit more, even though he rubs them up. But And then I was thinking, the 11th might be the worst one because he looks like a sort of young foppish character. He runs around the place and he's very sort of outspoken and loud. He's very much not military. And he kind of exhibits a lot of the character traits that Picard doesn't like. I mean, he's not serious at all. And even when he is, it's for brief bursts. And it's usually kind of like quite dark where it will talk about the time war or something terrible. And it just it struck me that there, maybe it was a deliberately unusual combination or perhaps it was just because the 11th Doctor was the Doctor at the time. And so they had to go with the current property, which is almost certainly the answer. But I just wondered, do you, did you have any sort of opinions on which Doctor might have gotten better with Picard or worse? That's an interesting point, because uh, I, I guess I hadn't really thought of it, but the Eleventh Doctor is one of the least authoritative of the Doctors. You know, even when he has authority over a situation, it's, it's an odd one. You know, he doesn't threaten and seem very dark all of a sudden. No, he seems drunk, you know, that at the like in the Pandorica <laughs> opens. Uh, his yeah. big speech, he's, he's, he's drunk uh, with, with arrogance, but it seems very strange. Whereas all the other ones very often can just go super dark or already have a gruff, you know, expression that can radiate with an authority that someone like Picard, who also radiates that authority, might respond to. Whereas the element, no, not so much. Yeah, I'd, I'd have loved to see the third Doctor in this with Picard having tea, the finer things. I mean, they have a lot of things in common, actually, mm. that would have might have worked there. And then you could have had Joe Grant being uh, all clumsy and engineering or something, just like... Uh, Ensign Gomez. Yeah, Sonia Gomez. So, you know, there is that. You could have done that. There are many ways they could have done this. Obviously, the element was the Doctor at the time, so it was going to be that. But you could imagine many Doctor Who Star Trek stories, possibly better ones, like the Doctor doesn't meet McCoy, or even the emergency holographic Doctor, who is just called the Doctor. You know, that, that could have been a fun bit to explore if this had been a Voyager crossover, if this had been a TOS, or proper TOS adventure, like Doctor jokes. Even Beverly doesn't really do anything with the Doctor himself, so there's no Doctor Doctor kind of thing. No. They really missed an opportunity. I mean, they had the fourth Doctor meeting Dr. McCoy. And oh, you could have done this with the holographic Doctor as well. Uh, in fact, that might have worked better simply because the holographic Doctor kind of represents a sort of side of technology that the fourth Doctor didn't sort of always get on with. But if you've got one of those Doctors saying, you know, I'm doing the classic trope of I'm a Doctor, not an X. And then you could have had the fourth Doctor say back to them, well, I'm the Doctor and I'm an X. And I think that would have been a quite a nice two-handed you know I, the, the exact second i saw the fourth doctor and dr mccoy i remember this distinctly when i read the first time when i read it in its serialized format i saw the fourth doctor and dr mccoy saying well they've got to do i'm a doctor not a blah joke of some stripe and i remember turning the pages 
thinking, where is it? And then the scene ends. And I, I do remember being very underwhelmed by that lack of banter because the Fourth Doctor and McCoy, they're both quite cantankerous as well. So it, it, there's a natural bit of conflict there. So there's so much here that could have happened and didn't. I thought it was quite conspicuous that they didn't mention the Daleks at all in this because this is a threat to the entire multiverse. And that is usually the wheelhouse of the Daleks. Maybe they thought that was a bridge too far bringing them in. But they also don't mention, from a Doctor Who fan viewpoint, that would have been quite a nice touch. Because if you say that they've even conquered the Daleks, then you know they mean business. That's the the final step. Because you have to get past the Daleks to conquer the universe. Any universe, I think. And also, just as an aside, the Borg Conduit, the captain of the Potemkin, who was Riker's friend, at the end, you see a photo of them playing, I assume, jazz. And Riker weirdly has an old black and white style photograph. Did you think... I, I think he really, really, really looked like Stevie Wonder, like a huge amount. Oh, yeah. I even mentioned I went back to look at old notes because I covered this comic for the blog way back when I was doing Star Trek reviews and all the Star Trek comics and all that were part of those reviews. And I, I even mentioned it there. <laughs> that was obviously a photo reference of Stevie Wonder uh, at the piano uh, playing the, uh, the captain of the Potemkin. <laughs> it's pretty strange but yeah but there's a lot of photo reference obviously involved in this which might sometimes give the characters strange expressions or uh, redundant expressions as the same photo might be used across the eight issues as just you know part of the game when whenever an artist actually uses a lot of photo reference in their art for licensed comics that happens quite a lot yeah it really happened in this quite quite often <laughs> Who fared better? Every show, we do a a small debate and decide who actually got the bigger or better end of the stick as far as the team-up goes. So first, how well does this fit each of the stories and atmospheres? Is this a Star Trek The Next Generation story, or is it a Doctor Who story? So you seem to think it was a Doctor Who story, first and foremost. I mean, I I, I admit, I do have a minor natural bias, but partly because I think, as I sort of touched on earlier... The Doctor is a fish that brings his own water. And and wherever the Doctor comes in, he automatically has to be the smartest person in the room. He has to know a bit more about what's going on than everyone else. And I think that holds true across all of his regenerations, pretty much. His morality is usually the extant morality. So no matter where you are, the Doctor comes in and he's the person who is right. And I don't mean that in an arrogant sense. He's right as in, like, he has a superior morality through being ancient and wise and what have you and he always wants the best for everyone he's the only one trying to save quote unquote save the Cybermen and the Borg and put things right whereas Picard wants them destroyed and so I think because of that it's basically a Doctor Who episode with the TNG crew having a very large major guest starring part in it okay yeah I get it from that perspective although I do feel that perhaps because of the way the writing has been done the setting is obviously the Enterprise is it's obviously the Star Trek universe even though they've sort of merged the two universes somehow that's not really quite explained that that has components of both and the Doctor suddenly has memories that are obviously Star Trek memories but it's taking place in the Star Trek universe it's like the TARDIS is off course and ends up in our deme- in in our like, in the Star Trek hmm. dimension, and the Cybermen have crossed into the Star Trek dimension as well. So we're in the Star Trek dimension, and I'd say that a lot of this is a Star Trek story in that, or a next gen story in that. There's a lot of talking, there's a lot of conference room stuff, and that's not part of the Doctor Who DNA, really. 
not in that way. So exposition happens in Doctor Who, but this is Star Trek exposition. I think it's like the worst parts of Star Trek really are, are what's not driving the story, but serving as furniture in this story. So the Doctor is the hero. I'll give you that. The Doctor is the hero. And I guess every TNG character is sort of left in the dust, kind of trying to catch up uh, while their guest stars are basically taking over and being the real driving force in the story. <laughs> and even the villains are Doctor Who villains who trounce the Star Trek villains. I, I'll certainly give you that, but I feel like the atmosphere itself is Star Trek's. What about cool moves? What do you think is the coolest move on your side of the... The 11th Doctor especially, but the Doctor full stop. He tends to breeze through certain adventures because he's smarter than everyone else and he knows what he's doing or at least he, he's good at pretending he knows what he's doing and the 11th doctor really breezes through this adventure pretty much all the way through he has one brief lament on on board the borg ship about all 359 but he is cool all the way through this but i think his ultimate cool move in this that is genuinely what you would look at and go that is cool is the moment where he's facing the cyber controller on board the cyber controller's sort of main ship, the flagship. And the cyber controller it gets up out of his throne, which he only does for very special occasions, and charges towards the Doctor, sort of screaming, Die, Time Lord! Which is a rare sort of moment of Cyberman emoting, so you know it's serious, and this is like the final boss battle where it's all or nothing. And all the while the cyber controller is charging towards him, arms outstretched, saying, Die, Time Lord! The Doctor basically... You know, what I think is actually a really quite sublime Doctor moment gives him one more chance to surrender. He just says, you know, this is your last chance to surrender in a very sort of Doctor Who moment where in spite of all of this evil coming towards him to rend him limb from limb and destroy him utterly, he still gives him one more chance. And that, that to me was an, an almost archetypal cool Doctor Who moment. Yeah, I agree. And Rory does really well in this story as well. So if we're looking just the, you know, the rest of the companions, uh, you've got a, some cool Rory moments. And in fact, the cool move for on the TNG side is almost anything that Worf does, really. Worf gets the, the better jokes and, you know, he's more terse. And at the end, he uh, throws the conduit, the, the wannabe Locutus, out the window and into the time vortex with Rory's help. So it's like these two are the warriors that have been paired up. As you say, this is really the Doctor's story. He does get the coolest moves. You win on that round. What about dumb or weird moves? I still think the dumbest move is when the 11th Doctor, right to Worf's face, to his face, just basically dismisses his entire culture. Just, you know, in microcosm, he says, guns make you dumb. Everything you hold dear, Worf, by the way, your war your warrior culture is dumb and beneath me and I dismiss it utterly with nary a, an air of concern now we know the doctor is not a fan of the military and he doesn't like violence fine he has a somewhat hypocritical attitude towards violence I think but still generally speaking the doctor is a bit more diplomatic than going right up to an alien and saying you're stupid the only species he ever does this with and there's an air of legitimacy to this is the Daleks because they are pure evil so in his own universe he could get away with that but Star Trek, which is a bit more nuanced in that, for the most part, in that point of view, going up to Worf and saying, by the way, everything about your life is wrong and stupid and dumb. Nina, Nina, Nina. That was a dumb move. Well, we talked about Picard's dumbest move as well, which is that he couldn't see reason. Even after Troy said to trust the Doctor, even after Guinan said to trust the Doctor, it took forever for him to turn the ship around and go 
save the Borg from the Cybermen. So uh, that isn't even in the spirit of Star Trek, that he would be so stubborn about this point. So that's the very worst, although on the art side of things, I will say that the way Picard, and I'll put this image on the website at fireandwaterpodcast.com, the way that he holds a, a phaser rifle is ridiculous. My suspicion is that the photo reference for this was the action figure. Because the only way you could have your action figures hold a, the rifle accessory is to put them in that position, which is not <laughs> a good position for firing. So, um, But you'll see, you'll see. It It looks like the action figure. That would be the, the dumb or weird move. So Picard really doesn't do well in this. There's, there's one, actually, there's an art reference that I'd like to touch on as well for... for weird moves Go in ahead. that perspective well in one of the many many visits to the conference room we have in this uh and there are plenty as you said earlier there's a scene where i think it's the first time rory amy and the doctor go into the conference room so they're looking at the at us as it were but, but in the universe they're looking at picard now all three of them for no reason at all it's a weird choice of photo reference if that's what it was they all look shocked utterly shocked and i thought to start with, I looked, and it looks like Worf's hands might be on the Doctor and Rory's shoulder. But Amy looks shocked as well, and there's no reason for it. It's, you know, they've been walked in here by Worf, so it can't be that that's going on. So the only thing I can conclude was, in-universe, because we can't see Picard, Picard is doing something really strange or weird or rude, or I don't know if he's, like, sticking his tongue out at them, flicking the Vs, giving them the bird, whatever you want. <laughs> You know, but Picard must have literally in universe. Picard must be doing something so shocking because they look their jaws. They're almost like the Tex Avery wolf. Their jaws have dropped, and I can't figure out what it is. But uh, it's a lovely moment, if only for the sheer bizarreness of it. I'll put both of these pictures up on the site so you can uh, see for yourselves. And then finally, is the friendly farewell. A that's a team up tradition. How does this one rate when our heroes? finally part ways I, look, I overall i did enjoy this because of what it is rather than what it does i suppose if i'm going to be honest with myself mm -hmm. the ending was nice i mean it was rushed i think you sort of said that earlier the last issue is rush 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 get to the end they kind of get to the point where okay these two groups are obviously going to part on a friendly way because it's not likely that you're going to have the doctor get the enmity of the entire federation through their flagship by doing something to upset them and they shake hands and there's respect and everything but it was kind of it was too quick I would have liked to have seen even, not to stretch it out, but you'd have some point where Worf and Rory share a moment of warrior bonding where Worf says, for a human, you're an adequate warrior, something like that, or for a nurse, I don't know. Amy Pond didn't really bond with anyone in particular. She had a moment with Picard, so she didn't necessarily have anyone to say goodbye to, except maybe Troy. Yeah. That would have been quite, you know. She has a cute goodbye with uh, Picard. I mean, there's, in the picture itself, she's the one that says bye to Picard, and he smiles as they wave. So... I guess that's the moment of their bonding. That's, yeah. And and the Doctor and Picard... The Picard finally gives the Doctor some respect, okay? He finally comes around and says, okay, kind of, you were right. This was the good thing to do, etc. and so forth. It took almost like a, a drill bit or something into Picard's skull to get him to sort of get to the point where he should have been at right from the start, practically. So it's a, a little bit bittersweet from that point of view. I, I, I take it as read that the Doctor has some respect from Picard, but it wasn't really hugely made abundantly clear that these were two quote-unquote equals parting ways mm. again it was a nice enough scene i just feel like there was more substance there to, to mine as a story and it's not that friendly because picard says i hope we never cross paths again <laughs> which is which is rare for a rare bit of uh, i don't know if venom's the right word but that's that's a rare thing for picard to say that because i'm fairly sure the doctor has it made clear 
to him that the Doctor is an alien life form and one he's never encountered before, which is part of his mission. And he still doesn't want him to come back. And it's not like he... He's clearly not malevolent. This isn't Q we're talking about. Because Q is another Doctor Who figure, just an evil Doctor Who sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the way that Picard usually deals with with, uh, Q, which is being impatient, especially impatient at the humor of it, uh, is a little Mm. bit like Kirk being impatient at the Tribbles and the the humor of that. (laughs) These these are men who are serious men and they don't like to be involved in a a sort of send-up. And being in the the Doctor Who story, that's sort of what happens in a sense. And there's this ridiculous guest star uh, who sort of takes over the, the show and takes over people's attention, and Picard or Kirk would bristle at this. Uh, That's how Q works as far as the dynamic goes. And so so you sort of have this here. I don't think it's, again, it's half-assed. It's not explored enough. It's not clear enough. At the end, it's just like the Doctor's uh, happy to go, but uh, would have been happy to stay and happy to have met these people, even though at no point do we see him enjoying them as people uh, necessarily. There aren't any of these moments, sadly. So uh, at the end, Picard wants him gone because he's a disruption to the tone of his show. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, yeah. Well, he's not in charge. When the Doctor's around, he's not in charge. More than anything. So, And then the Doctor doesn't really feel it it's all water off you know down his back it's friendly but at the same time not necessarily as friendly as we would have hoped as fans of both is that fair to say i think that's very fair to say well put okay we'll take a break for a couple of promos and then we'll be back to wrap things up coming soon from amalgam tv on the next episode of time trek the next regeneration jenny the emergency temporal hologram is keeping secrets from captain pond again which could have dangerous ramifications for the Federation timeship Rassilon. And River Vash is back with an improbable revelation. Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Give me that Star Trek. A new episode every month, only at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes. Grab tonight is the dream given form. Grab tonight is primitive culture. Grab tonight is Jedi Knight, the same as your father. Grab tonight is the beat you can dance to. Grab tonight is a big fat woman with thighs the size of a hippo's. Grab tonight is. A podcast featuring two guys talking crap about sci-fi fantasy. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or even Twitter at CrapTonight235. Just look for Crap Tonight. It's Kryptonite, spelt with an A. We're back. One final feature, the bonus team-up, in which each of us proposes the perfect Doctor Who team-up. 
I'll leave Star Trek for another show because I've actually got several team-ups. But Doctor Who, not so much. Not as uh, you, you, surprising that they, they haven't crossed Doctor Who over uh, with other things. So Ryan, what's your what would you propose as a good Doctor Who team-up? Okay, well, uh, I'll give you my genuine proposal and then my sort of one-liner sort of humorous throwaway one afterwards. Uh, <laughs> so my proposal would be Doctor Who and the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Dark. Uh, pretty dark, yeah. I mean, again... My leaning towards the seventh Doctor being my favourite would probably be the one I would go for for this. But if you think about it, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, to an extent, has all of the makings of a Doctor Who episode anyway. You've got humanity under threat by a metallic malevolent race as well. You know, already shades of the Dalek or Cybermen, depending on which angle you want to take. Mm-hmm. We've got the, the humans fleeing from the Cylon tyranny. Well, that's right up Doctor Who's alley. The, the humans are usually fleeing from something a lot of the time i mean there's a a very strong period of doctor who future history where human beings have left their solar system because of solar flares to colonize other stars so and battlestar galactica is just a shade away from that i mean obviously they're fleeing from planets that have been destroyed but there's no reason why that wouldn't be able to cross over anyway like it did in the simulation squared you have the seventh doctor who is the master planner and master schemer dealing with the cylons who infamously have a plan as the uh, saga cell at the start of every episode would say. So you'd have the two chess players, the, the Cylon species and the Seventh Doctor, battling for the fate of humanity who are caught in the middle, just trying to survive and deal with that. You've also got the fact that the Doctor would necessarily clash with Commander Adama and the Galactica crew because they're the military. And so the Doctor most likely, if it's the Seventh Doctor, he may well just try and blow up the Cylons. It's entirely possible. He did it with the Dalek fleet and the Dalek homeworld and the cyber fleet. So he's got history. But he may also try and broker a peace, which is something that neither side wants. Adama wanted to defeat the Cylons and get away. The Cylons wanted to ostensibly wipe out humanity. So you've got the different positions. You've got the, the, the chess player who is on one side and yet also not on either side. Uh, you've got an enemy that's implacable. You've got a human race that may not cooperate with the Doctor as usual. And I think it's got all the makings of uh, a pretty fantastic crossover, as long as you pitch it at the right level of darkness. And I think you would have to make it fairly dark, this one. Well, you've convinced me. I, that's that's something that might be interesting. And even might fit inside the Doctor Who continuity, because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen the Battlestar, but the, the time frame is actually not impossible to... To relate to the to the history in the Doctor Who universe, you know, it's, no, absolutely, you no. don't have to cross into another dimension to make this happen. And my sort of one-line comedy, you know, Tardisode five-minute comedy piece you could do for an anniversary or something. Berlinghoff Rasmussen from A Matter of Time that we mentioned earlier, the the Time Thief, teaming up with the meddling monk from the very early days of Doctor Who, because neither of them have that much regard for history. They both think they're going to improve it by getting technology from one future era and bringing it to a previous era, thus changing the timeline, quote-unquote, for the better. Those two, they're quite like-minded. I mean, the meddling monk is more of a benevolent meddler, but Berlinghofer of Rasmussen could be like, kind of like his, his business manager in time travel theft. He's whispering in his ear, being the devil on his shoulder, saying, no, no, let's, let's take this. They won't miss it, and let's go back, and, you know, and that way it'll be a better future, and we'll turn a reasonable profit as well. 
And I think there's there's a comedy team up there waiting to happen. Yeah, that's a Children in Need uh, <laughs> special. Yeah, or comic relief. Comic relief, there you go. For me, I think my first thought was Doctor Who and Mary Poppins. Uh, because hmm. I think we need a piece of fiction that confirms that the nanny uh, with a bag that's bigger on the inside is indeed a time lady. I, I don't think an Iris Wildtime cameo would be amiss in this story <laughs> if you know the expanded Doctor Who universe. I think this would be a funny and fun crossover idea that would have crossover appeal. Um, you know, Mary Poppins is a beloved story, and uh, I think uh, that would bring people to Doctor Who that would find out that they enjoy that too because it's got the same spirit. British whimsy. Uh, (laughs) Oh, absolutely. That would be my idea. As a potential sequel to that comic, would you have Mary Poppins meeting up with Missy and sort of really crossing the streams on the whole Mary Poppins time lady thing? Yeah, I think Missy could be the villain of the story or, you know, at least uh, have some sort of part in it or being inspired the master gets inspired who is mary poppins i mean i guess this comic would or this story would confirm she's a time lady so you know it's sky's the limit as to what's (laughs) what's the true history here uh of the whole thing is mary poppins missy and uh being good you know that that could also be used just because they got the same look i haven't written the story yet but one day one day when i have uh i get all the offers from the bbc (laughs) Mary Poppins that happens inside the Matrix and that that explains why there's you know cartoon sequences and it's just a, a virtual <laughs> reality just like in Dark Water uh, that thing you know excellent yeah let's do that uh, okay well thanks for teaming up with me Ryan remind people where they can find you on these here internets well uh, as you heard earlier the Crap Tonight my podcast Crap Tonight is still ongoing and I can be reached there at at Crap Tonight 235 or as a individual human being at Ryan Blake 235. There you go. A reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments and that the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcasts. We'll see you next time for another amazing superhero team up because, after all, justice is a team effort. Someone's been using a teleport relay right here in this shop. A teleport, like a like a beam-me-up teleport like you see in Star Trek. Exactly. Someone's been using a beam-me-up Star Trek teleport. Cyberman. <laughs>